0: So that then when you do have an opinion or you want to affect change, you could build that network that you've worked for around that concept and uh, have a higher chance of getting something done.
1: From this to this. This is Livable City, a regular podcast guiding us on a journey to more human places. I'm your host, Jim Hodap. I'm excited you're here to learn, to listen, and to lead. A warm welcome to you on this cold, snowy winter's evening. I'm Jim Hodep, creator and host of Liberal City. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. I'm wondering, how's our conversation going together? Is the message of change resonating with you? This is our 11th episode, and I've had quite a few conversations with different guests, including several of you. Are we getting practical enough for you, or maybe you prefer the higher level conversation with some specifics that energizes you to get involved locally? Please let me know. So when I was first thinking about the important values for a podcast that I wanted to make, which has become a city, one very important value was a strong desire to interview people who are extremely effective in creating change where they live, but aren't necessarily doing it as their full-time job. Of course, I've interviewed and will continue to interview folks who do local change professionally as well. But to say it another way, these are professionals in something else during their workday. But every moment they get, they're trying to engage in deep, dynamic conversations with local folks around them. They're in the center of leading change where they live. This deeply describes Gary Ritter, who is my guest on today's episode. By day, Gary works as a trust officer for a large financial institution and is very good at his job, but every other waking moment Gary is looking for ways he can connect with local folks in Indianapolis to be better together. Gary is an unrelenting source of inspiring change in his own neighborhood. If you're involved in anything having to do with the quality of urban aspects of Indy neighborhoods, at some point you're definitely going to cross paths with him. He's just that kind of guy. Gary is someone who's always trying to lead Indy into the ever better version of itself that he and so many other people know it can be. Though what really draws me to Gary as someone I call a friend is how Gary goes about things, and you'll definitely get a taste of this in the conversation I had with him. He's a great mix of humbleness while still knowing when to push, thoughtful enough, but also knowing when to turn off his mind and take some action. Gary knows how to make organic relationships, and he connects people so everyone is truly better off together. And he's relentless. Change takes time, and he's in it for the long journey. Make sure to listen in closely for how this applies to where you live and what the things you'd like to lead in your own neighborhood for change. Now that you know a little bit about Gary and what to expect in this conversation, without further ado, let's dive into this dynamic and fun conversation. Hey, Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do in Indianapolis as a resident. And, uh, you know, you work here in Indy. What's life in Indy like? Well,
0: I find it to be a very easy place to get involved. Um, I moved to uh, downtown Indianapolis in 2005. My wife and I built a house. And I think that it triggered a time in my life where I thought I would be more available to Get involved in the community. So I just made a conscious decision to do that and I chose a couple organizations to dive deep in. One of them was a local community development corporation. I joined the board and I quickly found that at that time the board was really designed around to attend meetings and vote on resolutions but not really understanding what a community development corporation did. So I started with the executive director and said, can I tell you at, if you have a meeting with a law firm or an accountant, can I get the uh, spreadsheets on what is an affordable housing complex funding and sources and use look like of the money? And, um, I joined a local theater festival board and then I joined a startup nonprofit, which is People for Urban Progress. They started off uh repurposing the roof of the former football stadium, which is known here as the RCA Dome, into uh, uh, products like uh, purses and briefcases and duffel bags and the like um, in 2008. And at that time, nobody wanted to uh, fund a startup because the economy had basically collapsed and the local foundations were pretty much focused on feeding people and keeping them in their homes and making sure they had health care. So they didn't have any tolerance for someone new. So we knew right away that we had to be as uh, self-sustaining as was possible. So we didn't have to rely on funding. And that's uh, a model uh, that we followed. And then being successful at that, it's the same model I followed at uh, participating in the theater festival. And then getting involved in, intentionally in the affordable housing area.
1: That's cool. Yeah. So you you haven't always lived in, in Indianapolis, Um How long have you been here, and then uh, what made you want to get involved in helping shape Indianapolis? Well, I moved
0: here uh, in 2004, and we we built a house in um, the Mass Avenue District, which is one of the five cultural districts in Indianapolis. Um, There's not a lot of opportunity to build new homes in the city, but um, unfortunately, they had a church in the area that um, structurally the engineers couldn't fix, so they had to tear it down. And uh, created five uh, individual lots uh, to build single-family homes on. So I've just purchased one of those lots, and I think you know everybody goes through different stages in their life where you know either work interferes with things that you're interested in. It could be family, it could be relationships, whatever it happens to be. And I got to the point where I thought that I had enough time, and I wanted to demonstrate to my daughter and my future grandkids. Uh, a culture in this family of giving back to the community. And in order to do that, I had to demonstrate that. So one way uh, to demonstrate that was the, the move away from the thinking aspect it, of it and, and move into the doing aspect of uh, community involvement.
1: Yeah. Tell me more about that. What uh, What's the thinking versus doing? I think there's always the opportunity, and you probably see more of this on
0: social media, where people are thinking about the issues that affect them or or at least talking about the issues that affect them that they want to change. And there's a leap between, um, doing a lot of thinking and and then you'll sometimes see on Twitter, for example, someone says, just don't tweet, do something, you know, kind of thing. And, um, that's a conscious decision you know that I think you have to make and it gets frustrating for people because they don't know how to become a doer. what, what does it take? So I just dove right into it. So one of the first things uh, that we try to do here was to start a car sharing program that was modeled after the Chicago car sharing program at the time. And we thought we would do a car sharing program just around Indianapolis as a nonprofit. Uh, I go in Chicago was originally a nonprofit, and um, I just called them up and said, we'd like to do something similar in Indianapolis. How do we go about doing this? And they offered that if we were going to do a car sharing program, that we could use their infrastructure as far as their um, website and their um, uh, app um, and anything else that they had that uh, we wouldn't have to duplicate. So I just called up the mayor of Indianapolis office and met uh, one of the deputy mayors at that time by the name of David Wu, and his first response was, tell me more. And they were going through an analysis of trying to take the uh, uh, the city government's fleet and converting them to electric cars. And Indigo, uh, IGO in Chicago had used the congestion mitigation air quality grant as a funding source. So um, I just called up the Indiana Department of Transportation and I, uh, the Department of Metropolitan Development. And it was simple as that, engaging people in
1: conversations. That's amazing. So uh, break that down a little bit. So you called each of these departments up, and what did you say?
0: I basically said we're trying to start a car-sharing program here in Indianapolis, and uh, we'd like to use the Congestion uh, Mitigation Air Quality Grant, similar to what happened in Chicago, mm-hmm. to uh, start a car-sharing program here.
1: And did they... Uh they say, like, why did they question your motives? Did they break it down or were they like, just tell us more? What do you have in mind?
0: Well, the Indiana Department of Transportation actually said we're not interested because the head of the Indiana Department of Transportation uh, did not believe that a car sharing program should be funded by the government. He thought it should be funded by uh, uh, private investment. So and um, he didn't agree with the state of Illinois uh, deciding that the congestion Mitigation Air Quality Grant was eligible for car sharing. So I uh, found a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., and asked uh, what it would cost just to add a sentence in the transportation bill that would make uh, car sharing specifically eligible for the congestion mitigation air quality grant. And he basically said it was a $1,000, believe it or not. So um, I donated a $1,000 to the nonprofit and we yeah. paid him to change the federal law, which Obama ended up signing. And how, how'd you find this
1: person, this lobbyist? Uh,
0: I asked the people at IGO in Chicago, like, um, oh, yeah. you know, what can I do when our state is uh, uh, balking at funding a car sharing program through the federal grant? Um, and then I called uh, Roy LaHood's office, who people in Illinois would know who he and his family are because he's a, a, a very moderate and uh, uh, a great uh, uh, government service uh, throughout his career. And um, they said, well, don't worry about it, because if they're going to turn you down, it has to come through our office first and we'll catch it and then we'll try to fix it because the local state Department of Transportations all report to the Federal Department of Transportation in Washington. So I did get turned down and they didn't inform the federal government before they turned us down. And when I called the state head, he said it was because even though Obama signed the change in the law, the application was uh, due in August and the law change didn't become effective until November or October. So he's uh, so he, he, even though he knew that Obama's intent was for the law to be changed by signing it, um, he said it wasn't effective yet. So he wasn't going to do anything with us. So but in the meantime, we had such a great conversation about car sharing going on in the city that opened up the door for Bolori to come in with the Blue Indy program where we were going to put two million dollars into a kind of a loop car sharing program and he put 37 million dollars into a car sharing program so um it's not so it's an example of something that maybe we did not specifically get uh results on but the work that we did laid the groundwork for something that was 10 times bigger and better
1: yeah so so i i see that as a win absolutely so you didn't start out you know by getting exactly what you wanted but um but, you know, Ballory came in and and saw basically like piggybacked off of what you were doing and you worked with you. And then, you know, I'm I'm here in Indy with you. There's a, there's a car share here and it's very effective. So it, it happened.
0: Yeah. And, and I'm um, uh, you know, it's never always just me. But, you know, the people at People for Urban Progress, yep. like Michael Bricker and his sister, Jessica and others, um, we all had a role to play in, um, you know, laying that groundwork. So. That gave, you know, some encouragement that there's other things that, you know, we can, we can do here to become effective mm-hmm. and how easy it was because yeah. it was simply as easy as picking up the phone and talking to people. Immediately the people in Roy Hood's office in Washington, he was the head of the Department of Transportation, took my phone call. I think there's an assumption as it, you might call and they're not going to take your call. Right. And, you know, I, I talked to the head of the state. Department of Transportation. I was able to call the Department of Metropolitan Development. Everybody was willing to talk to me and um, had an interest in at least hearing you out. So That's amazing. I'm not sure that you know how that is in any other city because I've only tried it here, but uh, certainly it's worked for me over and over again. So and the basis of me doing this, I read a book by a woman named Laura Andreessen and she's married to Peter Andreessen and he's the co-founder of Netscape. And her focus for her family before she got married, um, and herself is philanthropy, and she is uh, uh, has a, uh, a study program at Stanford University. And one of the premises, and anybody can Google this, like uh, the types of capital that are available for you or anybody to get things done. The first one is financial capital, and I have a little bit, but I don't have the kind of capital that a philanthropist has. Um, the next is intellectual capital, which it, we all have. And the third is network capital. So for all the things that I've gotten done here, um, most of them totally rely on intellectual capital of me and the network of people that I know here
1: that I can engage in getting things done. Yeah. So tell me more about that um, networking capital. So, you know, you the, around this car share, you you basically identified some folks that you can work with both locally and federally and in Chicago and. Uh, you know what? How how did it change you? How did it change the way you think about doing stuff in Indy? Well,
0: I, I think it showed m- me that you can create tr- uh, a team uh, and engage people that have in common interest in getting something accomplished. The only person who didn't seem interested in car sharing was the head of the Department of Transportation. Although at some level, he had an interest in getting it done through a private level. So we had a common ground. He wasn't opposed to the car sharing program in general. He just was opposed to using federal money for the program. Yep. So um, that kept that door open. And it allowed, you know, sometimes people get antagonistic if someone's not liking what you like. And we didn't have to because ultimately he wasn't against car sharing. Right. And there might be an opportunity in the future for him join us in another way. So um, I grew that into the idea in 2008, where um, just by chance, I stumbled across uh, an equitable transit-oriented development fund model in Denver. We hired a curator, uh, not we, but uh, the museum locally hired a curator at the uh, Indianapolis Museum of Art from Denver. And I was uh, on the Affordable Housing Board. And the article that interviewed him about why he came here mentioned that he had had some influence on changing the thought around architecture in Denver because he was the head of the contemporary art curator at the Denver Art Museum so I just went to the museum and asked to meet him and you know he was a little bit shook (laughs) kind of a nerdy guy that I would just show up without an appointment (laughs) and um really wasn't helpful in the conversation i think i kind of put him off on directly asking me tell me more about mm-hmm. your conversations mm-hmm. about architecture because mm-hmm. what i wanted to do is to figure out why can't we take the federal money that we're using to build uh, affordable housing here mm-hmm. and uh, also take a look at the kind of architect maybe we could change the conversation here about architecture because yeah. there is architecture that's very expensive yeah but there's also interesting architecture that uses um, elements of architecture that Are the same as the kind of bad material that we see sometimes on buildings anyway so maybe we could just get people to to have conversations with architects here about what they're submitting so when i didn't get any help from him i just googled denver and affordable housing and came across this fund and um, called them up and they sent me everything they had on what they were doing in denver and so i shopped it around here in 2008 and again i was told well, we're not doing startups. There wasn't really a conversation about transportation here. And I got a big wall put up. You know, I saw the real estate prices dropping. That's the perfect time to land bank, land and buildings at or near transit stops yep. to preserve it for affordable housing. That's where the equitable conversation comes into transit-oriented development.
1: Yep, some foresight
0: there. Um I probably was early. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a real estate developer, that's when you want to do it. You have to be early. Yeah. But that didn't deter me. So um, I think it was probably 2012 or 13 that the city of Indianapolis put out a call for ideas that they would grant $10,000 to study concepts or things to improve the city that would be in place by 2020, which is Indianapolis Centennial. It was kind of designed around emerging leaders, and I'm far from that because I'm in my 60s. But um, I contacted the uh, person running the program who I'd met through some of these other roles that I was volunteering in. and uh, she suggested that you know it was really open for everybody and I should submit the idea. Of creating an equitable transit-oriented development fund here. By then, there was louder conversations about transit going on, and um, an initiative to even, uh, you know, bring it to the uh, ballot. Yeah. So I got the uh, award, one of the fellowships, and my first reaction was crap because <laughs> I meant I had to, you know, do it and follow up on right, it. right. and. Uh, <laughs> So uh, it was great. So I raised another $10,000 and we did focus groups. We brought the people from Denver into the city of Indianapolis. We brought a team out to Indianapolis. And this is where my network capital came in. Mm -hmm. Being involved in the affordable housing, I knew uh, a CDFI, which is called SNAIR, which is people might be familiar in Chicago with Enterprise or LISC. Those are the three kind of major CDFIs in the country. And... um, Fred Hash, who worked for Sunair, joined me. And then um, I had met the Indianapolis Neighborhood Housing Partnership, which they do affordable single-family homes for purchase and financial education for people to get them qualified from a credit perspective to be homeowners. And uh, she's another one that said, tell me more. And I needed a nonprofit that had capital because the way these funds work is you have a $15 million target and you need... A uh, million and a half dollars to be equity, and then you borrow the remaining money from banks and foundations, and you create a revolving loan fund that buys land or existing buildings at transit stops, and they hold the land for you until the uh, selected developer, affordable housing developer, agrees to develop it the way the community needs it to be developed to preserve it for affordable housing. And I knew that they had financial capital because their their funding comes from the Lilly Endowment. And so they essentially agreed to adopt the E.T.O.D. fund, work with SNARE, And um, on many of the meetings, I accompanied them to go around to all the banks and uh, foundations in town and ask them to loan money to this fund at zero or uh, low
1: interest rates. This conversation on Livable City. will be right back. So you, you expanded your network along the way. So you started with the, the car share idea along the way and now ETOD. So you were tapping into some of your existing network, right? And expanding it into this new goal. How how much resistance did you um, run up against along the way for any of these particular ideas? I I don't think
0: I had that much resistance. I think that you get less resistance when you add people to the team and it's what's interesting about indianapolis is it's a small circle of people that are very active but then you have this broad base of a volunteer culture that i think started in the uh with the pan am games that happened in the 1990s or something where um people just showed up to do things. So I think that's an advantage that we have here is that Absolutely. Um, people are willing to spend some people a little bit of time and some people a lot more time. So when you're involved in this community, you tend to run into the circles, the same people. And then when you do, you start to understand what their background and interests are. Mm-hmm. And then um, you can draw on that when you're trying to accomplish something. And then yep. you find the people that are um have too many other things going on that they might be interested but people start to show up and say okay um I have the same interests that you have um can I help you or um I have a similar idea do you want to join the
1: ideas together and right you know that's that that's the network piece of it that works very well here so it sounds like not trying to force anything with anybody in particular but finding that buy in with The appropriate folks that are also interested right and then like uh sometimes you have to you might get into a roadblock
0: and you have other people that are connected to that contact and you might have to stop at that wall and move around it and get someone else that has influence on that person to influence them to open the door up wider so that you can get through it or it may take some time, you know, for you to establish your credibility in the community where people are, are willing to uh, listen to you and seek you out where you can help them on some things as well. So um, I think, you know, the the intellectual and the network capital are things that are underrated. And I would encourage people that, you know, want to get something done to, you know, to pick up the phone and join organizations and infiltrate places. So if you have an interest in transportation, what are the agencies, government or nonprofit that have influence and can you join their board? And if they say, well, and there's a $1,500 annual board contribution and you can't afford it, you can ask the question, well, from a diversity viewpoint of age and whatever the income barriers are, um, are uh, the, does everybody have to pay that contribution? And typically the answer is no. We want that kind of income diversity on our boards or we we'll, we're willing to waive it for people that are you know starting out in their career and don't have the money right now but have the intellectual capital and and the energy that we need to show up and get things done so
1: it sounds like you also challenged some of these organizations' assumptions along the way right or maybe the status quo what they're used to but, little bit by little bit. You didn't come in here with like a sledgehammer and said, all this needs to change and I want to get what I want to get done, done. And you're in my way, right? Right. I didn't come from it
0: as an activist Mm -hmm. where it was uh, a battle and everybody was the enemy. Mm -hmm. And I do once in a while recognize when people were out there in the community doing it. And I cringe a little bit because I think It's just not the model that works for me. Mm -hmm. And it kind of can turn people off. Mm -hmm. And I probably, you know, early on was more of an activist type of conversation because it's a natural thing to do.
1: It's very natural. Because
0: you're passionate and enthusiastic and it sounds like you're self-righteous.
1: Yep really easily
0: right <laughs> and you, you know it's not that you're right and everybody else is wrong it's just that i love the idea of being able to you know bike to work every day so of course i'm interested
1: in the yeah. biking infrastructure and you've experienced it in other cities and you're like it's so great right. And we just need to get on board with it.
0: and it's my life yeah. that's how i get to work right. so you know i want to be safe and yep. feel uh comp- and for it to be safe in other people and, and you know bring families out and yeah all those kinds of things that everybody talks about but so then i want to translate those thoughts into getting something done. And that's that's a first of all is a choice I want to move from talking about something or thinking about something than doing something. And when I make the choice I want to do something then I have to pick what it is that's I believe was is within my control that I can have influence and gather other people around. So um, that is another decision point. And then I have to commit, and I learned this from a friend many years ago. Sometimes when you ask somebody to join you, they'll say yes, but in their head they're thinking about the 30 other things they also agree to that this isn't going to work. Yep. So you've got to have an honest, honest conversation with someone. We built two theaters here. I was on a board, and the executive director – you know, stop me on a sidewalk after we made a decision that we were going to look to own a building in order to increase our brand and not be gentrified out of a cultural district in the future. And I, she said, will you help me? And I said, yes. And she said, no. Are you really going to help me? Like, I Like, I really need to know, because if you're all in, this is going to be great. And if you're not, I'll just, you know, bring other team members in with you and we'll do this together." And I knew what she was asking me, you know, are, are, am I all in? And I was all in and we ended up over uh, several years raising the money and, and renovating a building and converting it into a 120 seat theater and then adding on a 65 seat theater. And it's, you know, like a million to investment, um, with a, uh, with the idea that there are many people in the community didn't think that we could do it or should we do it? And it ends up now that the rents are so high in this neighborhood that that would have probably been converted to a restaurant or uh, some other bar and uh, we would have been pushed out and you know have find somewhere else to go or just close down our festival that probably generates four hundred thousand dollars a year in economic impact just in the 10 days that we operate as a festival but we also found that we could rent those two theaters out the rest of the year and have an earned income source that jumps our earned income to 67% of our operating uh, monies. That's amazing. So we can rely less on the foundations to keep us going because we're earning money and we feel like we're contributing that way because the less money they have to give us is the more money they can give to others that have a lot of impact on the community. So those are the things that, you know, I learned going through these processes of, you know, how can we attract others in the, in a financial model, Of what we're trying to do or 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 another model so now what we're trying to do is the chamber is looking at what is being made here but not bought by the local anchor institutions so they can connect the anchor institutions to local manufacturers and say instead of buying paper towels from milwaukee and we have to have a paper towel manufacturing company here is there the ability to and the pricing and everything that the anchor institution needs available right here in our back door and perhaps could even be sold cheaper because the, there's no transportation costs in getting in here. So um, again, it's, you know, it's a matter of having uh, connections and picking up the phone to people at the chamber and saying, while you're asking the question, what is already being made here, not bought here? Could you ask an additional question of what is being bought here, but not made here? And so if we got that data, we can then understand those are startup business opportunities. And could we focus on women and people of color to create those startup opportunities? Because they've always faced a barrier to uh, startup businesses. And if you think about how an economy is affected positively, it's by investment in education, infrastructure and small businesses. So maybe we can create some small business opportunities here through uh, figuring developing a partnership with the anchor institutions and then expanding that to the other chamber members who will end up being a pool of potential buyers of things that we are now making here that that are not made here.
1: So that's another, you know, uh, intellectual and network capital idea. Yeah, I was thinking that, too. Right. So you already had um, already have a relationship with the chamber. Right, and they reached out to you because they knew you were appropriate, you know, helpful, could help them. But well, we reached out to them because they were thinking, oh, you did? Okay. yeah, they okay. were thinking, oh, we're only going to do this for uh, businesses that already exist here. Oh, so you were, yeah, yeah. So you came in with your idea of expanding the the scope of this, right, to those who are um, underserved, essentially, locally. Right,
0: and, and the idea was
1: uh, if you're already dealing
0: with the, the infrastructure, the purchasing for all these network. you can ask one more question. Yep. And, you know, it's a difficult question. And we don't know what the data is going to show. Right. And I don't think it'll be a failure if we only find one business. And it's just not businesses, it's services or products. Yep. But at least um, we'll have a better understanding of how the economy works here and what is not made here. Yep that could be made here. So it's an experiment. Right. And we're doing the experiment through another uh, concept we created again, through uh in- intellect and network we created through the affordable housing. We thought we would create three tiers of what our organization was going to do. One is because we're in the arts and culture district. Number two is affordable housing and transportation support. And third is economic development. So we created uh Four makerspaces. One is like a manufacturing makerspace. People are making, let's say they're making candles and they're selling them online or they're making uh, beer mugs and coffee mugs and the like that they're selling to restaurants. Some people are making clothes or photography studio. There's uh, furniture makers. They become members in a space that we have. And then we either purchase or have been donated um, equipment that as a member that you can use as a startup business to make things and then offer them for sale to the public. So we have a manufacturing maker space and we have a vegetarian food maker space and we have a office space uh, for entrepreneurs. Your member fee might be $50 to $150 a month, depending on how much space you're using. And now we're just uh, creating, uh, we, or we're buying a 30,000 square foot uh, building for a local college to start an entrepreneur center there and a maker space. Yeah. So um that's all translated in um, from thinking about, you know, how are we going to create small business opportunities? And then what we're, we'll do is use those spaces from the data that we collect from the chambers effort to put out there in the community to, to attract people that, are interested and capable of doing these startup businesses. And then we'll have the space cheaply for them to do some of these things. And then the resources around, you know, accounting and the tax issues and the legal issues, the support that we provide all these people through uh, training and kind of seminar opportunities and uh, the resources that we can bring cheaper in order to get these things done more efficiently than somebody off on their own, not having people that can counsel them through all these challenges in order to become a profitable business.
1: How do you, um, you know, I so was listening to you, I was wondering, how do you uh, approach pacing yourself and taking on, you know, what's appropriate for you as an individual, right? Even even though you have a network, how do you decide what your priorities of what you're going to tackle are and how much and kind of that time, time span that's required to see this change? I think
0: a large part of it is it slows down a bit after your team's been assembled because then people assume roles. And then like right now, what's driving this is my interest in getting the people that have the decision makers in a room together, making the decisions in green on the next steps and then people being assigned responsibilities and roles. So it may sound in the beginning that it's a lot more work, but then you can exit and enter that process in order to keep moving it along. So it's sort of like um, being the supervisor of any type of business that you're in. And it's not always the manager that's doing the work. He's sort of the, con- uh, the conductor. I try, I, I don't always want to be the conductor because, you know, I like getting my hands dirty and and doing some of the work but yeah me too yeah <laughs> you but you know it, it takes an effort to step aside and let people do what they know they can do so in this case the the chamber's going to do the bulk of the data collection and they'll have the relationship with the uh uh the CEOs of the these large anchor institutions who will give us ac- them access to the purchasing department i just want to be in the background along the way because number one it helps me build more of my network as i you know if i get Involved in understanding and, and being at the meetings where they're talking to the head of purchasing for uh, Eskenazi Hospital, um, and um, it's uh, more fun.
1: Yeah. So absolutely. I,
0: I guess I'm, base, I'm basing it on what's fun for me and what's not, and then yeah. trusting that the other people that you get involved that yeah. they're going to do play their role. Yep. Yeah. And. And, and almost in every case, those people are having just as much fun as I'm having. That's most and they, important. And they take it seriously, yeah. and they, they're proud to bring the pieces together
1: Yep, to know that they were part of something that's having a major impact here. It also sounds like, again, back to your networking capital, like knowing the right folks to pull in right away in the beginning to help help get to where you're trying to go, but then also identifying the right folks to... Uh, formalize this stuff, right? That have the experience to keep this going, right? To not have it just be a one-off thing if it's required. Well, you know, I'm not attached. I don't own anything that I'm um,
0: interested in getting accomplished. So if I go to the head of Indie Chamber, um, who um, I've touched in different projects throughout the year, so he knows me, you know, well enough. So if I do send him an email or call him, he's interested in calling you back because it's not a, you know, a waste of his time. Um, and he might say, well, it's, this is not, um, not, not a good fit here, but he has his own network that he could you know tie you into. So that team comes together, not just from my network, it's from the people that I know in the community that I can reach out for help and they'll have suggestions and ideas. And I, um, uh, see you know make a judgment at that point whether it's worth their effort to put a little bit of time in it in order to help me you know row upstream a little bit and typically you know people are interested in and in helping
1: you if you ask them for help right you don't know, they're you don't just assume something or come in like we said before like like a righteous attitude right they'll they'll jump on board with you yeah and then they'll be willing to risk their network connections yep. by
0: introducing you because you don't want Someone to introduce you to someone and then they come back to you and say, why'd you send me that, you know, crazy guy? (laughs) All he did is come in and rant and rave. I mean, so they have to trust you well enough and that takes time. So the way I tell people to do this is to infiltrate. If you're interested in transportation, say in the city of Chicago, um, I don't know what the nonprofit agencies or the government agencies, um, or the, uh, aldermen that have some influence or control and interest that you can find a way to get on a committee join a nonprofit, go to the department of metropolitan development meeting so that they you know and and um, talk to the people after the meeting about your interests and ask them for their suggestions on how to get involved you you build that network of influence and trust and carefully select what where you're going to insert yourself So that then when you do have an opinion or you want to affect change, you could build that network that you've worked for around that concept and uh, have a higher chance of getting something done.
1: Yeah. And we're not talking about, you know, getting up in front and giving a speech necessarily or these very visible positions, right? So if you're more, you know, timid or or introverted, but still equally passionate, you know, you're talking about one-on-one conversations with folks, right? And showing up so Mm -hmm. they recognize you and
0: that they see that you're interested and asking, you know, uh, for advice on what should I get involved in? These are the things that I'm interested in and um, doing it and that, you know, and being patient.
1: Yeah. Why do you think it's really important for um, those who are who have like a passion for seeing something change where they live? Why is it important for them to step up as opposed to you know, just saying, oh, my city leaders will do it, or my state leaders, or you know, and any of my leaders where I live will do it. You know, it's I, I I've I've been thinking about that because once in a while someone
0: will say to me, and almost in an accusation, "What's in it for you? How are you making money doing this?" Or, or the question will be, "Are have you made any money doing the ETOD fund?" Or, you know. Uh, helping with this affordable housing project? And the answer is no. So sometimes they look at you like, oh, sure, you know, or oh, yeah. why are you doing it? Then? I don't believe you. Or yeah. you have to find <laughs> kind of a way to make money next yeah. time. Yep. And um, I want to live in a, my definition of a livable community mm-hmm. starts with my concept of happiness mm-hmm. and happiness of everybody around me. Mm-hmm. So it's a quality of life issue for Absolutely. me. So why shouldn't I give back by thinking about ways to improve the quality of life of everybody around me. And that affects me. So I'm not starting with, I want a bike trail because that'll make it easier for me to get to work. Um, I'm coming from this. If we can create a biking culture here, um, I can make more friends and have a happier life for myself because we have a healthy, happy community around us that, When I'm out riding my bike, you know, the people recognize me and they ring the little bell or say hello. Or sometimes people say, hey, you know, they turn around and catch me and let's go have a cup of coffee or, you know, it's a a community. So I'm just trying to uh, do things from a community that I can control. I get distracted by uh, national and state politics that irritate me. And I try to ground myself back into, okay, Um, I can't control what's happening in Washington, but I can control what's happening in uh, Marion County. And how many people are in Marion County, a million, one, you know, our ETLD fund is expected to do over five years, a thousand units of affordable housing. That's about $250 million of construction and a $600 million economic impact based on an economist's prediction. I don't have $600 million to give away, but I can cause it to happen. And that's the lesson that I would like to bring to everybody here. You can cause things to happen and it doesn't have to be you making a contribution, but you do have to give your intellect and your network connections and your time and make a commitment and choose something that you're so interested in that you make an attempt.
1: Yeah, so even though like your leaders may be capable leaders, they don't have all the things that you talked about either. That that you or any of us bring uniquely, our you know if we do have some money or we do have some intellect capital um, or we do have a network, they don't have that network. You have that network.
0: That's part of it, and then also that um, look at a city's perspective. Uh, they have an agenda and a platform. That doesn't mean that they are only on that single path. They've chosen that agenda and platform because that's what they believe that they're capable of doing. So people tend to play for what's reasonable Mm -hmm. because they want to be able to show that they accomplished something. Mm -hmm. But you can't get extraordinary results from playing the reasonable game. Mm -hmm. So if you go into uh, an organization and the first thing that happens is they're going to think about, as you're telling them what you would like to change or help them with or your idea for improvement in the quality of life in the city, they're comparing it to their own agenda.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So when they realize that you're not telling them to go left or right, how do you incorporate your project into their agenda? And then also at the same time, what are you going to do to accomplish that? Because it's one thing to bring an idea to an organization and say, you need to do this in order to improve the quality of life or say, how do you feel about this issue? And what if we were able to bring a group of people together to do the pre-development research and gather the support from the community and a team that will accomplish this? Will you support us as we go down this path? Mm -hmm. So then when I go to a foundation and say, um, we would like you to uh, loan money that will pay you back in order to cause a thousand affordable housing apartments to happen here in the city. their are questions going to be: um, What does the city of Indianapolis think about it? Um, what are the other funders? Who are they, and what are they going? Uh, and 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 who are the other people of influence in the community that you're you're bringing this on? So when we go to the city and say, "Hey, we would like to do this fund, and this is the path we're going down." It fits into their goal and their agenda and their platform Mm -hmm. because you made it fit. And they're also super happy that they don't have to stop what they're doing and add any more resources that you're going to go off and cause this to happen and bring it to them in a box that's wrapped with a bow in it. Yeah. That's, you know, they're more open to those kinds of ideas. Yeah. Um, I think they shut down if you go and say, um, um, I've identified a problem and uh, we'd like to see you fix it. Yep. (laughs) exactly they are interested in fixing it but they're like you know that's like number 99 on my list right exactly so that's you know another lesson that i learned
1: yeah and i also hear you saying in a way when you're gathering all these folks together you're already establishing a little bit of what you want to see ultimately right you're creating a small version of that future community by gathering all these folks
0: Right, because I'm expanding their networks mm-hmm. as well. And also as a group, we're seeing that more and more what we can accomplish. And then when they're trying to accomplish, we start pulling each other into different things in the community yep. um, and asking. You know, it's it gets to the point where you have to decide what to say yes to and what to say no to. Right. <laughs> but um, I think that, um, you know, there's value. And right away when you're out there, You know, when I met you and you had your, uh, decided that you were going to have an influence here on, uh, density and and improving a community by adding, um, more housing Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it worked because Mm -hmm. of the community involvement. Mm -hmm. You know, you find people like yourself that, okay, this person is also a thinker and and a doer Mm -hmm. and you're, you're mentally attracted to them. So you put them in the back of my head like, oh, okay, I just met a guy named Ramon Morrison. And and then I met someone named Terry Skipper. And it took me like six years to figure out a way to engage them um, in something that I was doing that I knew they were interested in, in such a way that now we're all working on different projects together. But I probably met them seven years ago and kept in touch And um, we, you know, reached out to to each other about different things that we were doing. So so finally, we all three of us came together and said, yeah, oh, my gosh, now we've got something and we're going to do this. We're going to create this entrepreneur center um, in a disadvantaged community um, that's going to um, create jobs and um, repurpose this building. Yeah. And going to have a, you know, to me, it's going to be something that we'll read about in the national papers when we pull this all together. So that's the other thing: is you know, keep your ears and eyes open for what your friends have talents for, and it may take you for a while to engage them in a project that you're interested in. But stay in touch and look for those people that you know that have the have the same
1: thought process of moving from thinking to doing. Yeah, Uh, oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I wish we could keep this conversation going (laughs) because it's so good. But uh, do you have any uh, final things you want to leave with our listeners? I,
0: I think you it's it's good to think beyond yourself. So my daughter asked me why I was doing some of these things, because occasionally I'll say I'm going to, you know, your mother and I are going to come visit you, but it's going to be like an hour later because I'm going to have this breakfast meeting first. And um, I, you know, I was kind of glad she asked me a question, but I was a little bit surprised because I thought it was something that was apparent and maybe it comes from the same people asking me what's in it for you you know are you you got to find out a way for you to get paid why are you doing these things and what I'm trying to do is encourage you know everybody around me to uh, create a culture of, of giving back by demonstrating so that when and when it comes the right time for my daughter she'll naturally say okay um, a lot of the barriers in the past that have been there like she has a four and six year old I don't expect her to you know be waving the the flag that she'll she'll have to pick and choose and she'll want to pick and choose something that she's going to engage in and then she's going to demonstrate it in, to her kids in a way and then my grandkids will demonstrate it to those kids so it'll be an expectation for future generations and w- what I realize is sometimes you have to speak it you just can't demonstrate it. You know, I actually have to pinch somebody and ask them if they felt it. And um, so that's what I would say. Think about the impact that you want to have in the community after you're gone. And then how can you leave that as an inheritance to other people in your family and other people in the community that uh, you know that one of the things you left behind is uh, the ability for people to have an interest in participating. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um,
1: Gary, where can folks find you online?
0: Uh, They could find me at uh, RileyArea.org or uh, IndieFringe.org. I'm on both of those uh, boards um, and uh, contact me through those organizations.
1: Perfect. Yeah. If any of this is uh, resonating with you, definitely reach out to Gary because... He's been very influential in how I look at things uh, myself and what I do. So he's a good guy to uh, get in touch with. Well, Gary, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And uh, I really mean this, but I hope we can do this again soon. Looking forward to it. Just a quick shout out and special thanks to Gary for being a guest on Liberal City and offering us his wisdom and experience leading so much change in Indianapolis. There's so much here to dive into. And I want to direct you to engage with Livable City either on Twitter or the Facebook community. As always, links to these places are in the show notes or on the Livable City website. Gary is a member of the Livable City Facebook group, so I encourage you to join the group and post your thoughts and your questions for him under the episode announcement. If you're not on Facebook for whatever reason and you want to connect with Gary, please reach out to me via email, thelivablecity at gmail.com and I'll be sure to connect you directly with Gary. Thank you as always for listening, and please be sure to leave a comment on iTunes, Google, or Spotify if you can, as it'll make sure that more people who are thinking about the conversation of creating and leading better places get a chance to participate with you and me. Thanks for joining me and the rest of the Liverpool City community. And as I leave you from this episode, remember to first listen, learn, and then lead.